We'll read verses 1 through 8 of 2 Corinthians, and then maybe you'll want to stick your finger in there because when the message begins, I'll be referring to these verses in some detail. We want you to know, brethren, about the grace of God which has been shown in the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but first they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Accordingly, we have urged Titus that as he had already made a beginning, he should also complete among you this gracious work. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you excel in this gracious work also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Disinterested benevolence directed toward God is blasphemy. If you come to God dutifully offering him the reward of your fellowship, instead of thirsting after him, for the reward of his fellowship, then you exalt yourself above God as his benefactor and belittle him as the needy beneficiary, and that is blasphemy. The only way to honor and glorify the all-sufficiency of God is to come to him for the pleasure of knowing and being loved by God. That was last week's sermon, and we might have called it vertical Christian hedonism. Between man and God on the vertical axis, the pursuit of pleasure is not simply tolerable, it is mandatory. Delight yourself in the Lord. Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. But what about horizontal Christian hedonism? What about our relationships with other people? Is disinterested benevolence an ideal among people? Or is the pursuit of pleasure also mandatory in all human relationships? Here's the answer of Christian hedonism. The pursuit of pleasure is an essential motive for every good deed. Or to put it another way, if you abandon the pursuit of pleasure... You cannot love men 
or please God. What I'd like to do this morning is try to show you why I think the Bible teaches this and then deal with a few problem passages at the end and challenge you to join a long history of Christian hedonists in the labor of love. Let's go back to the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. And let me read the first two verses of this chapter and pose the question, what are the inner and outer acts which Paul calls love here? We want you to know, brethren, about the grace of God which has been shown in the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality on their part. Now skip down to verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to, to prove by the earnestness of others, namely the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. In other words, he's giving the Macedonians here as an example of earnest love. And so the questions we should ask is, uh, what is the love in verses 1 and 2? What does love look like? Three things. First, it is the result of a work of divine grace. We want you to know about the grace of God which has been shown or given In the churches of Macedonia. What was happening up there in Macedonia. Was a result of grace. Being poured out into those people's lives. Second. This experience of God's grace. Was causing abundant joy. Verse 2. They were just filled up with joy. Now notice the joy is not because. They had become rich. Due to God's prospering. They hadn't. They were, what? It says, extreme poverty. These Christians in Macedonia were living in extreme poverty and full of joy. Third, this joy in God was overflowing in liberality or generosity. When Paul took up a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, they just gave and gave and gave. So here's my definition of love from those three observations. Love is the overflow of joy in God which meets the needs of others. Love is the overflow of joy in God which meets the needs of others. Look at verse 4 to confirm this. They begged Paul earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now that verse keeps us from thinking that when they were giving liberally and really shelling out what money they could as extremely poor people, we shouldn't think that it was because their relationship with God was constraining them to act against their big desires and to perform a duty. When my sons last Friday night 
begged for another game of skee-ball over at the circus in Brooklyn Park. Oh, can we, Daddy, can we play one more game? It wasn't because they were trying to perform some great duty. And therefore, when these people at Macedonia beg, oh, Paul, may we not give some more? Please, can we give some more? Shouldn't we conclude that's what they wanted to do? That was their desire. That's what brought them joy. When the Macedonians, the poverty stricken Macedonians, begged Paul for the privilege of giving money, we may be assured that's what they wanted to do. To be sure, they were denying themselves what they could have bought with that money. A little more food, another toy for the child who was already poor. But they weren't denying themselves for the sake of some sterile, joyless act of duty. They were giving up the pleasure of extra food for the joy of sharing God's grace with others down there in Jerusalem. These people are so full of joy in God that giving, even out of poverty, that giving is not a burden but a blessing they can hardly wait to engage in. They have discovered the labor of Christian hedonism, love. Love is the overflow of joy which meets the needs of other people. I have heard so often from Joseph Fletcher's situation ethics to I don't know how many chapel talks at Bethel College. People with all good intentions saying, love is not what you feel, it's what you do. And that is drastically misleading. If that were true, why would Paul ever say in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I profit nothing. You know why he says that? Because love is always more than doing. Not sometimes, always more than action. Paul did not hold the Macedonians up as examples of love because they gave generously. He held them up as examples of love because they were so full of joy in the love of God that they overflowed in generosity. You can give all you want and have it not be love. So love cannot be defined in terms of mere action. Don't let anybody convince you of that. Read the Bible. Benevolent action that does not flow out of joy in God's grace is not love. The only thing that the Apostle Paul will call love is the labor of Christian hedonism, namely the benevolent action of people who have found their satisfaction in God and now seek to expand it by sharing it with other people. Love is the pressure we feel inside to expand our joy by sharing it with other people.
So I hope you begin to see why I said the pursuit of pleasure is an essential motive for every good deed. And if you abandon the pursuit of your full and lasting pleasure, you cannot love man or please God. But there's lots more evidence. Look farther down into 2 Corinthians 9. These two chapters are all Paul's call for a big offering to take to the poverty-stricken saints in Jerusalem. And in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 9, he gives the principle that covers the whole two chapters. Each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I take that to mean that God is not pleased when people act benevolently, but not gladly. Is that a fair interpretation? God is not pleased when people act benevolently, but not gladly. When people don't find pleasure in acts of service, God does not find pleasure in them. He delights in cheerful givers, cheerful servants. That's why I said, if you abandon the pursuit of your cheer, you can't please God. God is pleased by cheerful givers. If you are indifferent to whether or not you perform acts of service cheerfully, you are indifferent to the command of God. We ought not to be indifferent to what God demands. We ought to pursue what God demands. And what God demands is that we give cheerfully. We delight in acts of service. And therefore, it is very essential and not just optional that we be Christian hedonists on the horizontal level as well as on the vertical axis of life. That we always pursue the joy of giving. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me talk to myself as a pastor for a minute, although I hope you'll agree that what is said here to the elders or to the leaders of the church are said to everybody who has a ministry. And this morning we're going to close this service by giving you opportunities to check on a little uh, folder places that you might want to engage in ministry in this church. So this may be a very relevant place. For you to pick up your ears. But it's directed at me and the deacon council mainly. Peter applies in chapter 5 verse 1 following. A principle. The same principle that Paul applied to financial stewardship in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Look at verse 2. He says to Piper and uh, to the deacons. Tend the flock of God that is in your charge. Not under constraint. But willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That's the same word, by the way, used three times in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Here's my translation of that. God loves a cheerful pastor. God's command is not just that I do my work, but that I find joy in doing my work. That I do my work 
eagerly, not just for what you pay me, not under constraint, fearing the judgment of God, but because it's so much fun to preach. If you and I don't pursue our ministry because we expect to find great joy in it, then we don't pursue the command of God. There's another verse. This one is so familiar you don't need to look it up. It's Acts 20, verse 35. And strikingly, it's Paul's address to another group of elders. And listen to how he motivates those elders to care for the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed elders to give than to receive. Now, when Paul says, remember this, keep it in your mind, he must mean that when it's in your mind, it functions rightly as a conscious motive for ministry. He must mean that the moral value of our generosity in ministry isn't ruined when we pursue it hedonistically. Like so many people think it is. It is not wrong to desire and to pursue the blessedness which Jesus promised when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. He didn't say, now this is the truth and get it out of your head as soon as you can lest you do it. Pursue the blessedness that comes from giving. Which brings us back to where we were last week. What's the hindrance to love in the church? It's the same hindrance to worship. The thing that keeps us from obeying the first vertical commandment is the same thing that keeps us from obeying the second horizontal commandment. And it is not... That we are all trying to please ourselves. But that we are far too easily pleased. We don't really believe Jesus. When he says. There's more joy. More blessedness. More full and lasting pleasure in giving. In a life devoted to helping others than there is in a life devoted to our material comfort. We don't believe it. And therefore, the very longing for contentment that, according to Jesus, ought to drive us to simplicity of life and labors of love, contents itself instead with the broken cisterns of American prosperity and comfort. The message that needs to be shouted from the top of the IDS Tower and the city center to pleasure-seeking Americans is this. Hey, Americans, you're not nearly hedonistic enough. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. Go for broke. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heavens where no moth and And uh, rust corrupt where no thieves can break in and steal. Quit being satisfied with little five and a quarter percent yields of pleasure that get eaten up with the moths of inflation and the rust of death. Invest in the blue chip 
high yield, divinely insured securities of heaven. A life devoted to material comforts and thrills is like throwing money down a rat hole. But a life simplified for the sake of love yields dividends unsurpassed and unending. Hear the word of the Lord, O Americans. Sell your possessions, give alms, provide for yourselves purses that do not grow old and treasures in the heavens that do not fail. Come on, become real hedonists. Wake up. That's the message. We've got gospel. We've got good news to share with the world. Leave the broken cisterns of temporary, unsatisfying pleasures. Come to Christ in whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Join us in the labor of Christian hedonism. For the Lord has spoken, it is more blessed to love than to live in luxury. Oh, that we believed it. That the Lord's word were believable to us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I am just amazed at what I've seen in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. And I'll just carry you through here with me. He is so amazingly consistent in his Christian hedonism, it's phenomenal. Hebrews 10, and we'll read 32 to 34. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being published, publicly exposed to abuse and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on the prisoners and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see the situation? Some Christians had been arrested and put in jail. The other believers were facing a moral dilemma. Do we go underground, pray for them, or do we express our solidarity with them and risk losing our homes? And the text says that their joy in God's reward overflowed in love. Here's what they did, if I can reconstruct the situation. They looked at their own lives and quoted to themselves Psalm 63. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And they looked at their houses with all of their, their furniture passed down from their grandmother. Precious vases. And they said to themselves, we have a possession in heaven that is better and longer lasting than any of this. And then they looked at each other and they said, let goods and kindred go this mortal life. Also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And they went with Jesus to the jail and they lost their possessions. 
And what does it say? They felt as they went joy. Christian hedonists through and through, they knew where their treasure was. And they didn't have to act according to any sterile sense of duty. They just glutted themselves on the joy of love. And to drive the point home, look down in chapter 11 at the example of Moses, verse 24 to 26. Notice how similar the motivation is here to the Christians in chapter 10, the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse, suffered for the Christ, greater wealth, than all the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Isn't this author amazing? Let me just carry you through here and and let, let this verse sum it up. Back in chapter 10, verse 34, he says that the desire of the Christians for a better and longer lasting possession overflowed in joyful love to those who were in jail. Prison ministry came out of their delight in God. Then you remember 11... Verse 6, chapter 11, verse 6, you cannot please God unless you come to him for the reward of his fellowship. Then in verse 16 of chapter 11, he praises the patriarchs. Why? Because they desired a better country. And notice, therefore, because they desired it, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared it for them. And then what we just read in eleven twenty four to 26, Moses is a hero. Why is he a hero? Because his love for the heavenly reward overflowed in such joy that he counted the pleasures of Egypt rubbish. And he bound himself to the people of God in love forever. One more. Look at chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus is the highest example of a Christian hedonist. And here's what I want to pick up on tonight. Look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Brothers and sisters, the greatest act of love that was ever performed was possible because Jesus did not fail to pursue the highest possible joy that he could imagine, namely being enthroned at the Father's right hand, surrounded by a redeemed people. Now, that example of Jesus brings us to the question of texts that look like problems. And I want to just lay them out before you, show you that I'm aware of them, and then try to answer them. Here are three texts that are often raised against this idea of horizontal Christian hedonism. 1 Corinthians 13.5 Love seeks not its own. Piper, you keep telling people to seek joy. Well, love seeks not its own. 1 Corinthians 10.24 Let no one seek his own but that of another. 
Romans 15, 1 to 3. And this is where we're tied in with Jesus. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to edify him. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell on me. Do those three texts contradict what I've been teaching? I don't think they do. When Paul says, love seeks not its own, do you really think he means that we dare not delight in acts of service? Especially when he said in Romans 12, 8, let him who does acts of service do them cheerfully. Surely he doesn't mean that if I am drawn to preach by the joy of sharing the good news of God, that therefore preaching is not an act of love. He goes on to say just a a little bit further down in that chapter, love hopes all things. What is hope but the expectation that something joyful is going to happen? If we give Paul the benefit of the doubt and don't jump to the conclusion that he's contradicting himself, these so-called problem texts, I think, can be explained very easily. Isn't what he means that Christians ought not to seek their own private, limited pleasures that ignore the needs of others? That we ought not to please ourselves with material comforts at the expense of love. Instead, we ought to join with Jesus on the Calvary road of suffering and shame and simplicity. But not begrudgingly. Surely we ought not to join Jesus begrudgingly. Not grumbling. I think we ought to join Jesus, according to the New Testament, because of the joy that is set before us, just like he endured the cross for the joy that is set before him. Because God loves a cheerful giver. Because God loves eager pastors. Because it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because suffering with Christ is greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Yes, there is a doctrine of self-denial. There is a doctrine of self-denial in the Bible. We must deny ourselves, you with me? We must deny ourselves sand in order to build on a rock. We must deny ourselves the praise of men in order to have the approval of God. We must deny ourselves moth-eaten treasures in order to have eternal heavenly wealth. We must deny ourselves safety among men in order to enjoy security in God. We must deny ourselves drunkenness and gluttony in order to be guests at the biggest, longest banquet that will ever be held. We must deny ourselves self-reliance in order that we might say, the Lord is my shepherd, I don't have any wants anymore. Never, never without exception, Does God ever ask you to deny yourself a higher value for a lesser value? 
That is sin. But always, always does God call upon you to surrender second-rate, fleeting, unsatisfying pleasures in order to obtain first-rate, eternal, satisfying pleasures. After his vertical summons to the feast of Christian hedonism in worship comes his horizontal summons to the labor of Christian hedonism in love. And that order is very important. We go back to the Corinthians or to the Macedonians. Love is the overflow of joy in God, which meets the needs of others. So I conclude by simply challenging you to join a long history of Christian hedonists. George Mueller said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to devote myself every day is to have my soul Happy in God. And out of that overflowing priority of happiness came a life devoted to the orphans of England. Hudson Taylor's son wrote at the end of his life, or at the, that he said at the end of his life, I never made a sacrifice. And his son comments, what he said was true, for the compensations were so real and lasting that he discovered giving up is always a means of receiving when you're dealing heart to heart with God. And out of that commitment to a non-sacrificial life of love came millions of Christians behind the Iron Curtain in Red China today. One last example. In 1980, I was over at a hospitality house at a supper and a young man stood up, associate pastor of Zion Baptist Church in North Minneapolis, he had become a Christian as an inner city kid through Hospitality House. He had gone to seminary in, in uh, Pasadena, went to Fuller. He came back here in uh, 1979 to take up his job now in ministering to inner city youth. And he gave a little speech. And I remember one sentence that he said. He said, if I can just love somebody, I'll be happy. And that's the best commentary I can think of on the words of our Lord. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So let's pursue it with all our heart here at Bethlehem. I'm going to invite the ushers to take those forms that the Christian Education Board has prepared and begin to give them out. And I'll explain to you while they're giving them out what I want you to do with these. We did this two years ago, you remember, a ministry survey form. Looks like this. And here's what I want you to do as you get these. We're going to take three or four minutes here at the end of the service. For those of you who feel a desire to express to somebody that you're available in certain areas of ministry. Now, from the sermon, you ought to gather that... Uh, Nobody is under pressure to do what you don't want to do. The last thing we want is people engaging in ministry here begrudgingly or because they feel they have to. But if you are hungering to pour out your life in a need that Bethlehem has, we might be able to connect a need and a desire and a gift by your filling this out. Put your name and address on it. Don't forget the choir, guys. They already probably have enough to do in their choir ministry, but maybe 
Some of them would like to have uh, have one of these to fill out. Put your name and address on the uh, on the back and then go through and just check off any place where you might like to be contacted someday when a need arises. Then we'll computerize this and we'll give copies of this with uh, to the leaders of these various areas. At the end of the service, we'll have a prayer of dedication. You can give these to people standing at the doors when you walk out. But right now, let's take two or three minutes to read. Those of you who are already committed to the gills and uh, don't need to fill one of these out, you pray and look this over for those who are making decisions about where they might want to invest themselves in the coming year. Shall we stand for a closing prayer of dedication? Our great and generous God, whose great delight it is to minister to us day and night, holding us in being and promising us glory, would you work in our hearts so that we have your disposition towards acts of love, so that for the joy set before us we're willing to endure anything, so that we can take the plundering of our property involuntarily, or the voluntary giving it up in simple generosity with joy. Grant that as people lay themselves open to ministry at Bethlehem, they do it with the excitement that in ministry there are the greatest and longest lasting pleasures to be had in this world. And let us never be deceived by newspapers, magazines, televisions, display windows that more joy is to be had anywhere else but in knowing you and loving others.